Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. God, we gather today to worship you and thank you and are mindful that in the great exchange of Christmas gifts, you give to us your son. And in the end, there's nothing left for us to give you but ourselves. And we do that this morning. We offer ourselves to you and pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on us and help us hear you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Merry Christmas. It's good to be together today. <laughs> you know the feeling. You leave on a long trip, car's packed, everything's going well, you're on the road, headed the right direction, and then you come to the sign, detour road closed and you you know you can you can probably feel it I can feel it you follow the signs off the road you expected onto side roads you didn't even know existed Uh, you follow those around and about the plan was to drive straight through but now you're operating by a different plan it's a detour and it takes you through places you weren't planning on going maybe they're nice places Maybe not. Maybe those places are scary and dark and cold 
and lonely. Whatever they are, they are unexpected because detours are always unexpected. There's a, a couple kinds of detours mentioned in our text of this morning. And I think it's on purpose that the lectionary, if you don't know about the common lectionary, it's kind of a Bible reading plan that's, that's uh, observed by many Christians in many places. And in three years, you read through most of the scripture. And there's a flow of passages. And this is the lectionary text for today. Very much part of the Christmas story, but very much part of real life. Yeah, Jesus was born. Yeah, the incarnation happened. And yeah, we still live in a world where evil and suffering are very real, all too real. The, the detours mentioned in the text today are two. We might, we might call the first a God-planned detours. You heard this in the passage, right? Joseph and Mary found themselves in a place they didn't expect to be, Egypt. But they knew exactly why were, they were there and they knew exactly what was going on. They didn't want to leave their homeland. You know, in that day, their local community was their life and they had already gone through the shame of Mary being pregnant prior to them being married. And here now, a couple years after that, they might have just been emerging from that dark cloud over their lives and more fully engaging their community again. And then another angel shows up. This keeps happening to them. But this angel has a rather dire message. And what parent wouldn't obey? Your child's in danger. You need to go. You need to go now. Just grab a couple things and leave. Okay, we're in. And that is exactly what they do. Again, it's, it's a detour. But in the passage of scripture we read, there's another kind of detour mentioned. While Joseph, Mary, and uh, the now safe baby Jesus were alone in the Egyptian desert, the families of Bethlehem were experiencing a, a desert far more barren than Egypt. After being jilted by the wise men, Herod sent down the order, kill them. Kill them all. Every boy, two years and under, in and around Bethlehem is to die today. And if it was a movie, you can imagine the scene, right? The generals gathered around looking at one another non-verbally saying, are we really going to do this? In, in one day, right, every life in Bethlehem was changed. Some parents who had wanted a child for years were now childless again. Many lost a son, some lost a brother some a grandson, some several grandsons. Every life in Bethlehem took a detour that day and they could not see what was going on. They had no idea why this was happening. And that's the big question, isn't it? Christmas is real, the incarnation happened. God came right to where we are. 
And yet we live in this world where this stuff continues to happen and unfold. It's the big question, evil and suffering. What, what do we do with this? And, and, and the precise question with regard to what happened in Bethlehem that day with all those little boys, did God plan that? Is, is that what God did in Bethlehem that day, planned and brought about the killing of toddlers and infants? Yeah, sovereignty. Yeah, foreknowledge. I, I, I get it. But does God make every detour happen in our lives? Meaning, does God cause them all to happen? I mean, all the events of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, does, does God prescript them and cause them to be? I believe that the Bible, understood correctly, says no. I mean, we believe big picture sovereignty, but I have to hang on to this idea that God does not ordain, meaning plan and carry out every detour of our lives. I just can't believe that God planned the killing of those children. We don't understand it, there's a lot of mystery, we're not going to solve that today. But maybe we call this kind of detour a God-allowed detour rather than a God-planned detour. Maybe there's an important distinction there. Certainly might impact the way we're viewing God in all of this. I, I remember so vividly, I was in um, seminary I think it was 98, the Columbine school shootings. Some of you weren't even born yet. Uh, but this was one of the first of the now many kind of larger school shootings, and it was horrific. I remember watching it unfold on TV in kind of a live news coverage. But the most vivid memory came from that evening when I was watching the national news. And a, a woman was interviewed, and as the interview unfolded, she concluded with this, just you wait and see, God made this happen for a reason, and we'll be able to see it. And I just thought, no! What are you talking about? How can you possibly believe that? Or listen to this story, a true story recorded by a pastor named Greg. Melanie walked into Pastor Greg's office and said, I've lost my passion for God and my joy in life. I used to be a fired up Christian who poured herself into her faith, but now I feel nothing toward God and I'm always depressed. I used to run marathons, but now I'm a blimp. My husband and I used to be so close, but now we're almost total strangers. Church used to seem so exciting, but now it bores me to death. I used to love to read the Bible and pray, but now I find both difficult and aggravating. I just feel dead. After some conversation, Greg learned it all began four years ago when Melanie and her husband lost a baby during childbirth. As long as she could remember, Melanie had wanted to be a mother. She didn't marry until her mid-30s, so to beat the biological clock, she and her husband began to try to have children. After three years with no success, they learned they had a medical condition that would make conception virtually impossible. 
Their extreme disappointment was short-lived as Melanie conceived. Not long after this uh, consultation, in her, in her words, quote, we thought it was a miracle, but their greatest joy became their darkest hour when during delivery, the umbilical cord wrapped around the baby's neck and the child was killed. After two years of struggling with doubt and depression, Melanie and her husband sought answers from a Bible teacher they respected. The answer they received was consistent with the theology Melanie had grown up with. Said the teacher, God has a reason for everything. There are no accidents in God's providence. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away and you just have to trust that God knows and always does what is best. The hand that smites is also the hand that heals. You just have to trust him. When Melanie asked what possible good God could have intended from taking her baby and leaving her without a child, the teacher suggested God might have a lesson to teach her and her husband and that when they learned it, God might give them another baby. Or maybe it wasn't God's will for them to have children at all. Melanie accepted this plan as gospel truth and felt guilty because she had difficulty trusting in that plan. She'd come to Pastor Greg to seek help figuring out what lesson God might be trying to teach her so she could get her life back on track and maybe get that baby she so desperately wanted. Said Greg, let me get this straight. You're supposed to believe that God gave you the strong desire to have children and set you up to believe he was going to fulfill this desire only to kill the baby he gave you? Yeah, yeah, that's right, said Melanie. Does, does that seem like something a loving God would do? Can, can you picture the Jesus of the Bible doing that? What are you saying, asked Melanie. Melanie, do you really believe that God kills babies to teach parents a lesson? And do you really think that God is now refusing to give you any more children until you learn this lesson? Even though he won't tell you what the lesson is? And the clock is running out, said Melanie, so I need to figure this out fast. And the conversation went on. After some time, Greg said this, if I can be perfectly frank with you, what you were told to believe sounds like a sick game. God takes your child, refuses you future children until you learn the lesson you're supposed to learn, but God won't tell you what that lesson is. This doesn't sound like a wise and loving teacher, to say the least. How are you supposed to be passionately living for God when this is the picture of God you're trying to live for? Melanie said, are you saying God didn't do this to me? Greg, I have absolutely no reason to think God did this to you. The one thing I know for sure is that God is fully revealed in Jesus. When we see Jesus, we see the very heart of God. And everything I know about Jesus leads me to believe that God grieves over this situation even more profoundly than you do, if you can imagine that. When things went wrong in people's lives, whether it was about their physical or spiritual condition or some tragedy that happened to them, I don't recall Jesus ever looking for the hand of God in it. Instead, he had compassion on suffering people and treated them like casualties of war. He expressed God's heart by bringing relief to people suffering. Melanie, I know the Lord is deeply in love with you, your husband and the child you lost. And he wants to heal you and restore you and give you the abundant life he died to offer you. The word struck a chord 
and she just began to sob. In between sobs, she said, he, he didn't do this to me? You mean God didn't do this to me? And so many people struggle with this and, and refuse to believe in God because they have a mental picture of God they find untenable. They assume that believing in God means accepting that God plans and brings about everything that happens to us in life, even the most gut-wrenching, inexplicable suffering. And thus they reason, God must somehow be responsible for all the evil and suffering in the world, that all that evil and suffering is somehow a working out of some kind of master plan. Since people can't accept this idea with integrity, they reject belief in God. I have a good friend in this place. It, the conversation happened years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. We're talking, and he said, John, I just can't believe there's some kind of big, big plan in the world. I, when I look around, that just doesn't make sense to me. He believed that his struggle to accept the idea that God plans the incredibly painful events of our lives disqualified him from faith in God. That's what he believed. Moreover, he believed it to be standard Christian teaching that to become a Christian, he would have to accept that God causes all the evil in the world as an outworking of God's master plan. So I turned 50 this year, and Crystal asked me what I wanted, and I said, I want to go to Chicago and see Hamilton. And we did. Thank you, honey. If, if you haven't seen it, um, you should. It's really good. Uh, there, there's there's a, a little interlude, so it's a revolutionary kind of thing, and George Washington gets involved, and, and, and there are these periodic uh, comedic interludes from the king of England. And uh, it, it's just ridiculous because they're, they're portraying the, the warped, nature of this king, trying to pose as a benevolent father, yet ready to slaughter the whole colony, right? And here's, here's one line. When push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Yeah, I shouldn't be in the musical, should I? <laughs> I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Come on now. Isn't that the picture of God that some people are trying to live with? That God causes everything? And there, theologically, there, there's a variety of understandings of, of God's will. What I'm talking about is God pre-plans it, makes it happen to you. Is that really what you have to believe? Each of us has some kind of working picture of God in our mind if we're people of faith and we're believing something that impacts our lives. And, and the question is, what's your picture? And upon what is your picture based 
And you have the little King of England voice in there. With that message. If you're in that place, consider this scripture. God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. If you don't know this, there's a terrible lie being paraded around the world. And I I don't just mean like a Sunday school lesson kind of thing that we learn about in church. I mean what's happening in your inner dialogue on a daily basis because that's where the lie lives. And if you haven't really considered the inner dialogue, it's a fascinating thing. There's some great stuff in 2 Corinthians about how we can engage that more actively in, in a form of spiritual discipline. But if you, if you consider how stuff gets in your head, you know, we live in a Western culture, Western world. We've adopted that culture entirely and we refer to that as self-talk. And that's our summary of everything that goes on in our head, our self-talk. I, I want to propose that the Bible offers another view of the world, that stuff gets in there through a variety of means and it's not just through ourselves putting stuff there. The scripture speaks pretty clearly of the world, the flesh, and the devil and the influences that happen in our inner dialogue. And this is another conversation, but I propose that there are really only, only four ways that stuff can get in our heads like that. World, flesh, devil, or the Lord. So are we discerning? Are we sorting through that? Or are we letting those messaging systems just play unedited, unaudited. And and behind many of those scripts is the terrible lie. If you've been around the Bible for a bit, you, you remember that sin came about through deception, right? A lie about the character of God was presented And Adam and Eve bit, took the bait. Here's how it reads in the Jesus Storybook Bible. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart in our inner dialogue, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. When you clear away all the clutter, That's one of the bedrock questions in the whole conversation about evil and suffering. Is God trustworthy? 
Does God have a plan that includes things like wars and holocausts and terror attacks and divorces and stillbirths? Does God love us? Because if God the King plans the killing of our friends and family to remind us of his love, we could do without that. We could do without him. So what do we say? What's the best Christian answer to this perplexing question? Just as a false picture of God separates us from God, an accurate picture of God draws us toward God. And here it is, it's Christmas, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. And according to the Bibles, what Christians believe, Jesus is our best picture of God. I mean, the scripture says that. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Jesus said it himself. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God. That's the claim of Christianity. Therefore, we can't base our understanding of God only on our experience in the world or our independent philosophizing or even our own interpretation of the Bible apart from Jesus. If we look to anyone or anything other than Jesus, we will continue to live under the serpent's lie and wonder, does God really love me? I mean, we believe Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished exactly what he said he came to do. So here's the thing. If God looks like Jesus and Jesus invested his entire life, including the laying down of his life, to free people from evil and suffering and misery and to bring back a kingdom where those things are not present at all, how can we hang on to a lingering belief that God is somehow behind all the evil in the world? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, there's a lot of mystery and we don't fully understand it. But we simply can't believe that God causes all evil and suffering. I mean, how do you explain the flood story of Genesis 6? Remember that God looked around and, quote, regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. I mean, if everything was unfolding just as planned... Why was he troubled? Where'd the regret come from? Doesn't the cross of Jesus prove that God was willing to die for us for the very reason that the world was not in line with God's will and unfolding in the way that he desired? And that God's deep hope and plan was to restore us to a place of shalom, of peace, where everything actually does unfold according to what God desires and regards as best. I mean, think of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus told us to pray this, to lead with this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does not that prayer assume that God's will is not happening on earth as it is in heaven? 
And does it not suggest that we should pray daily that God's will would happen on earth just as it does in heaven? Of course it does. Right? That surely means that God, for some mysterious reason, allows things to happen in this world other than he prefers and desires. We're not erasing the mystery. Why would God allow evil and suffering? We don't know. One theologian suggests this. Maybe, as it was in the beginning, God wants to rule through mediators who freely choose to cooperate with him in applying his will on earth other than just snapping fingers and making it happen. And great, great mystery in life. And at the end of the day, there's no answer that will erase all of it, that will get rid of the tension in this point. We live in the tension. And why the arbitrary outcomes in life, where the good get cancer and the bad live long and prosper? Why, when one family prays for safety, they lose a child in a car crash? Another family who never prays avoids accidents altogether. Why Joseph is guided by the hand of God away from danger with his family to save his son. And yet all the other families in Bethlehem. Can you imagine the wonderings of the parents? Maybe I could have. Maybe I should have. Maybe a way to look at it is to consider where we locate the mystery. Meaning, where do we lodge primary responsibility for all this bad stuff? And is the mystery in the person of God or the complexity of a broken world? Obviously, I'm going to suggest it's in the complexity of a broken world. Because how could we possibly piece together all the interplay of consequences in a world that has turned away from God and is populated only by rebels. How can we put all that together? I believe that Christians stand on firm ground in believing that the mystery and uncertainty in life is with a complex and fallen world, not with God. There's a lot of mystery with God, I'm not saying that. But, but the mystery around evil and suffering. For he, God, does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. Like Melanie, I think we can say with relief, he didn't do this to me? You mean God didn't do this to me? I mean, if this, if this issue has been holding you back from more deeply considering faith, I hope this helps in some way. Uh, many, many people have found the claims of Jesus compelling, life-changing, and helpful in considering all this bad stuff that help, happens in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus but have been hurt by an unspeakably painful experience in life, I hope this perspective helps you. Somehow, we need to be set free from simply repeating in our spirit, he must be trying to teach me something. He must be trying to teach me something. He must be trying to teach me something. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Free to re-engage God and others, free to grieve our very deep losses. And know that God loves us. 
right? You cannot experience the life Jesus died to give you if you base your picture of God on anything other than Jesus himself. That's the thing. And as a church, we can't get to where God is leading us if we have lingering doubts about the trustworthiness of God because then we'll just live in a state of perpetual questioning with regard to God's intentions and ability rather than moving forward in faith and relationship. Right? God is for us, not against us. That's the basic message of scripture, basic message of the gospel. God is for us. And in Jesus, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. God is saying yes to us, not no. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So, audit your inner dialogue. What's going on in there? Do a deep audit. Trace the messaging backwards. How many of the messages circulating around in there can find their way back to the basic building block of a lie that says, God doesn't love me? That's the world, flesh, and devil in your head. Don't believe that. It's not true. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Make Jesus your working picture of God. If you're ever wondering, you just have to run it through the filter. Okay, if Jesus was in this situation, considering all that I know of him, would he do that? then we're we're building a Psalm 46 kind of faith. We're not building it. God's building it in us. And we'll be able to say with the prophet Jeremiah, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Grief is real. Mourning is real. And there's nothing wrong with grieving and mourning. Yet, This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Pray with me, please. God, show us what is right and what is true, uh, how you would like us to trust you. Help us uh, as, we, as we walk each day in a world that's really hard. Pour out your spirit upon us and help us fix our eyes upon you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.